Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us for episode two of season two, and we have a great discussion ahead. Going to start with uh, Elliot Turner today, and then uh, we'll have Phil Ordway with his segment as well. Elliot, I'll turn it to you. Go ahead. Great. Thank you very much, John. And, uh, you know, I should point out this week we're recording on Tuesday instead of our typical Thursday, um, you know, because it's Rosh- uh, it's Yom Kippur this Thursday. So, you know, wanted to wish all my fellow observers uh, nice and easy fast and uh, happy and a healthy uh, new year. Um, and, you know, in, in, interestingly enough, uh, this week's topic, most weeks it doesn't truly matter which Day we're recording because we're speaking about high level, long term things, or more conceptual. And every once in a while, we get a topic that I think is like especially timely and relevant. And this week, I wanted to talk about labor shortages, and it's something that I mentioned uh, last week in our recording when I spoke about my trip to Lake Placid, where I saw help wanted signs everywhere. A couple restaurants I really liked weren't open on a few days because they can't get workers. And, you know, more specifically, a town like that, where it's very seasonal, uh, they rely heavily on young international workers who use it as a toehold to come to the U.S. for a little bit of time, get a visa to work, and then travel uh, thereafter. And you'd think with COVID, okay, you know, this is normal. It's not normal in the sense that it's not easy to travel across borders right now, not easy to get international workers. So perhaps it's something, you know, confined to a destination area. Um, but just yesterday morning, I got a text and this text came after having had some weird days with the school bus driver situation ever since the school year started, right? We're in back to school season right now. And, you know, the text basically said, we have a shortage of bus drivers in the school district and therefore buses will be running late. Now, obviously that day the bus came three minutes early and a couple of parents were left hanging at the bus stop uh, five minutes later when, you know, they missed it. But point being, you know, there's some weird stuff going on out there right now. And school bus drivers wouldn't be an area that you think of uh, labor shortage. But it turns out this is a trend that's taking place across a lot of um, hourly or lower wage jobs. And it's something that's been an acute problem in the economy uh, as, as things stand. So I spent much of my formative years in investing, um, worrying about labor markets having too much slack. And, you know, I've often attributed the disinflationary period to having very loose uh, labor markets where it's pretty easy to hire people for just about any job. Um, And thinking that until there's an inflection um, in labor supply getting a bit tighter, that we don't really have to worry about inflation at all. And we had an episode last season where we talked about some of these supply chain shortages. And, you know, I was quite emphatic that these forces are transitory. Um, but, you know, on the one hand, I want to ask the same question with respect to labor markets. On the other, I'm thinking some things are quite a bit different. 
Um, so a little more than a year ago, we had the highest unemployment rate since the Great Depression. Obviously, that was catalyzed by the lockdowns following COVID and changing our lifestyles to accommodate this pandemic. But now we're experiencing some of the tightest conditions and, you know, the Fed's still at zero on interest rates. And I'd really been thinking the inflection had happened as 2018 was turning to 2019. So I actually wrote about it in my year-end 2018 letters. And I was having some conversations with several CFOs at the time in manufacturing and in logistics. And they were saying things like labor tightness was starting to be a challenge. I had one CFO tell me that it was, in fact, an even bigger challenge than supply chain issues from China at the time. Again, this is back you know, 2018 giving way to 2019. Um, but we never truly got to see that play out because, you know, the Fed kind of made the policy mishap of that mistimely uh, extra hike in December 2018, had to reverse course. And, you know, there was just a lot of other drama before COVID hit. And we never truly got to test whether there's something catalytic and, and enduring in the change there. Um, and, you know, in part, this was the Fed's policy goal. Um, I think. Powell had been more explicit than Yellen, who had been more explicit than Bernanke, they would let things run hot for a little while after having had a period of running uh, below trend for growth for quite an extended period of time. Um, So the way I see it, there are two big ways to ease labor tightness. Um, You could have rising wages, which makes labor more expensive. Um, and so some employers will, you know, hire fewer people. You could also have, and, and, you know, demand will drop accordingly in certain areas as prices go up. And you could also have uh, more capital investment because a lot of uh, questions are considerations of should I hire an incremental worker or should I invest in technological capacity to do something a little differently? Um, so rising wages do cause problems for some kinds of companies but they do also offer opportunities for others. Um, And this is true with both uh, capital investment and rising wages. And both are in some ways very supportive of GDP growth, but the question is whether it's nominal or real, right? Um, In in some cases, you can make the argument for either, depending on how it manifests. Um, And there's also the separate question of what may be great for GDP growth could actually be quite terrible for the stock market itself. Uh, Very high periods of GDP growth tend to actually correspond to not such great periods in the stock market. Um, And so I was hoping to think through some of the investment ramifications. I wanted to point you all to a great crowdsourced Twitter thread by Compound 248 the other day. He specifically asked, what is the best way to get long wage inflation? Um, I gave a not so serious answer at first, but then I gave my real answer, which was part of what I wrote about in the 2018 uh, year-end letter. Um, This company, Cognex, Cognex does machine vision. And very specifically, Cognex is replacing humans in uh, manufacturing, uh, in logistics, um, in areas where, you know, it's either people looking for defects or people scanning and recognizing barcodes. Um, And the math's very simple, right? For a company in that case, they're looking... Um, is it more NPV positive to hire one more worker or to invest in uh, my automated capabilities? Um, and so I think it's you know a fascinating idea, very timely. They've often said the biggest impediment to faster growth in uh, machine vision, right, in technology has been uh, this ease with which employers could hire people. But now you see Amazon raising their prices for uh, their warehouse logistics facilities. You know, there's something very different right now. 
And then one of the other areas that I didn't answer that specific question with was I think payment companies are really interesting. Uh, you look at a company like PayPal, um, and you know the generality behind this is you look for companies who have very high fixed costs, um, who have revenues that are positively exposed to rising wages, right? If labor gets more expensive and people are spending more money in places, um, and yet PayPal doesn't have to spend more in its own right, that's quite interesting. So you know I was thinking those are two specific areas. And then what I wanted to do is you know, open it up to you guys, Phil and John, hear some of your perspectives, both on some interesting investment opportunities, what's happening with the uh, labor tensions and whether this is something that's ephemeral or enduring, um, why it's happening. One thing I've heard a lot of people say is unemployment uh, benefits were too lax for too long, though. You know, I think there's uh, th that's not exactly in place anymore, and yet it's still problematic. But I'd love to hear more on what you guys think are, is causing this. Um, and then, John, I wanted to hear, you know, is this something that's uniquely American? And I'm seeing this from the perspective of someone sitting here in Connecticut, or you know, how's the situation in Europe? Is it similar? Um, and then, in general, yeah, is is it structural or or frictional? Um, are some of these changes because people have to get new kinds of jobs with how we're adapting to COVID, or is you know what what I was seeing in 2018 to 2019 something that's like truly manifesting now? So let's let's open it up. Oh, there's a lot there. I don't know quite where to start, but one observation that jumps out a lot when I when I dig into this is I just pulled up the data on the. Bureau of Labor Statistics website. And uh, it's pretty stunning if you look at the labor participation rate over the last 20 years. So going back to August of 2001 through August of this year, you know, it's basically been a one-way train straight down. Right? I mean, so August of 2001, the labor participation rate was about almost 67%. Uh, right now, it's a little under 62%. And that's millions and millions of jobs, right, that are not being filled by people that are currently in the what's called the civilian workforce, right? So not in school, not in the military, not of retirement age or school age. And, uh, you know, so it was down but steady-ish until the financial crisis hit. The financial crisis took, you know, two or three points out. And then we just continued to kind of bleed off participation rate points, you know, going from 66 to 65 to 64. It kind of leveled out in the 63 and a half range until the pandemic hit. And then here we are. And so I, I just wonder, I guess the, the first thing I'd throw back is that any big issue like this has to be multifactional, right? There has to be some confluence of things going on here to create something like this. So I don't think there is one answer. And if there is one, I certainly don't know what the one variable I'd isolate would be. But two, if, if something like that's been going on for 20 years and you look at some of the obvious demographic changes in the country and in the world, I think that's a, a smart place to start looking. And so I just have to wonder if this is a structural long-term issue that we're going to continue to face, I think with good reason. And, and if that's the case, then we, we may never recover the pre-pandemic participation rates. And you know, anecdotally, I think if you look at it, you know, it's pretty stunning when you consider that last year, somewhere between four and five million Americans voluntarily stopped working and what that means for the economy going forward. Some of those decisions were because they were in very low wage jobs that were not fulfilling and don't really make any economic sense, both in the fact that, you know, it's hard work and there's other ways to make ends meet, whether it was through 
transfer payments or you know insurance of various forms through the pandemic, or whether it was because the costs and benefits just don't don't shake out. I mean, particularly in light of healthcare. I mean, at the other end of the spectrum, it's not just a debate about minimum wage. I personally know a handful of medical doctors that quit their practice last year during the pandemic because there was so much chaos in the world and and with kids at home and not in school, what do you do? So I, I it takes a long time to recoup those gains. I mean, another way to look at this is, is particularly through the lens of the pandemic. There are now about as many women participating as the, in the labor force as there were in the early 1980s. And I just don't know how long it might take to recoup those those levels. So my strong opinion, without any way of proving it, would be that this is a long-term structural issue that we'll still be uh, facing and dealing with years from now. What, what do you think, John? Well, I have to admit, uh, it's a little bit over my head to try to predict anything here. Um, I can just make some observations, but I feel like anyone who um, pretends to know, uh, including the Fed chairman, is uh, either straight up uh, lying or is delusional. And uh, I would expect more from the Fed than you know, pretending to, to know everything and, and uh, have a complete handle on everything. Uh, but, you know, I, I feel like that also tells us something because when when you're dealing with institutions uh, that fear uh, potential consequences of uh, saying that they don't know or trying to be uh, a bit more differentiated in how they're uh, analyzing a situation, that tells you that we are at a um, potential turning point and maybe a, a bit of a, of a dangerous point in time uh, in terms of the economy and, and what might happen. Um, because we're not just seeing labor shortages. I mean, we've seen um, issues in, in all kinds of markets and segments of the economy. Um, and certainly some of those are transitory, but I don't think the, um, the, the inflationary pressures overall are, are transitory. And um, when you look at the way that uh, all markets have rallied, basically, uh, including some uh, very clear bubbles, in my view, in, in some markets, um, like things like uh, NFTs and, and other uh, areas where, again, I don't know uh, whether these things are for real, but I know that they're only possible in this kind of market environment. And, um, you know, or take housing prices in the U.S. I mean, should that be considered inflation or not? Clearly, it's a, it's an asset class, but it's also something people want uh, to have. And uh, it's becoming uh, much more difficult to, uh, to achieve that. Um, and there can also be spillovers from asset markets to the real economy. I mean, if you think about um, just uh, kind of a, a way of thinking that I like is kind of a take things to the extreme. You know, if, if stocks keep going up uh, at this pace and uh, the market's worth uh, 200 trillion, uh, people can uh, sell those uh, securities and uh, and use that money to buy things in the real world. And that would lead to all kinds of price pressures. Um, so I do think um, the environment is something that investors should keep in mind. I don't think it's an environment in which zero um, percent or in, in Europe, it's actually zero percent on the 30-year government bond denominated in euros. 
And that is just uh, incredible. And I don't think any sane investor would lock up their money for 30 years to just get the absolute same amount of money back in nominal terms. Um, So clearly there are things going on that are not reflecting a free market. And I think shortages uh, in labor, just to get back to the topic, um, we are having shortages in labor in a free market that should lead to higher wages. And that's how you get rid of the shortages. Now, I know uh, from having grown up or spent a few years growing up in a communist country, in those countries, shortages can persist because the government will say the price of bread cannot go over uh, this amount or, uh, or or what have you. But then what, what ends up happening, you uh, have no more bread for sale. And, uh, you know, we're now seeing that restaurants uh, in some parts of the U.S. are having a really hard time uh, hiring workers. So that's a little bit for me. Yeah, I'm, one interesting implication of that, and, and by the way, in case it wasn't clear, I don't have any great predictions either. I, I'm just pointing out the long-term nature of this and the way it's persisted through some pretty tumultuous times over the last 20 years and, and what that might mean. But to your point, John, which I think is really interesting, what if one takeaway from this is that at the high end, you know, if you have lower than you'd expect labor participation at the high end, it could be just because, at least in the US, probably in parts of Europe as well, you have a fairly wealthy aging demographic, right? That would lend itself to lower participation rates, right? I think we, we can agree on that. And, and if that's the case, then it doesn't really reflect the lack of a free market. It just kind of reflects the demographic circumstances we're in. And at the low end, you're talking about you know unfilled jobs at an hourly rate that are you know somewhere around the minimum wage type level what if there is actually a free market at work you know implicitly at least saying that all right these jobs aren't enough to sustain you know a lot of economic prosperity for the labor supplier right the individual employee so the obvious implication of that is just that, is just that those jobs are going to be completely and totally replaced by technology right everything from the person working at McDonald's, you know, on down the line, we can come up with, you know, just just about every job in that universe, not every job, but a, a good chunk of them can be replaced by technology, right? And I mean, just as we domesticated animals and to start plowing the fields, and then tractors replace horses, you know, computers and technology can replace cashiers, and on and on we go, right? And, and as computers and technology replace those low end jobs, isn't that going to be deflationary, as it's always been in the past? Yeah. So yeah, just to, oh, go, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead, John. Sorry. No, I was just going to um, kind of reply to, to Phil there. I, I totally agree. I think um, that will happen and uh, that does kind of push things in the other direction. Um, and I think we're also just kind of seeing a little bit the kind of society we'd have maybe with, um, um, you know, when you hand out uh, money to everyone with, you uh, then you basically get uh, the low-end labor saying, hey, I don't need to uh, work for such a low amount. So we're seeing a little bit of that as well. Elliot, sorry, go ahead. No worries. Yeah, no, you guys made a lot of good points and there's a lot to chime in on. I think that effect of technology replacing labor, it's as old as the, you know, it's older than the Industrial Revolution. But one of my favorite examples was of, uh, I think it was Perrier, their original invention. They weren't per se, a bottled water company at the time, what they did was formerly people would carry water bottles up uh, flights to have drinkable uh, water um, on on higher floors in the city of Paris. 
And uh, they created a water elevator to make sure water could get up there without people. And there was like a mini revolt about it. But, um, you know, technology has been replacing jobs, freeing people to do other kinds of jobs that formerly were not ones that you'd consider, you know, commoditized kinds of labor. So I I just think that's a cycle that keeps going uh, and will be as old as time. Um, the other, I think, I think you both made a really good point about this high end in the labor market. And, you know, I, I um, wrote up these 10 things that will change with COVID in my Q1 2020 letter. And number 10 was leaders stepping aside of how, um, you know, predicting this accelerating passing of the tor- torch from boomers to millennial generation in corporations around the world. And then very recently, I've started seeing these uh phrasings and headlines about what they're calling the great resignation and about how it's actually quantifiable now the extent to which Americans 62 and older are retiring now. So we went through a period, I'd say probably from the 70s through the uh, 2010s of people working longer, of their retirement age rising. And suddenly for the first time in, you know, uh, call it half a century, the exact opposite is starting to take effect. And it's like a very interesting force. It creates a lot of dynamism in the economy, I think, having younger people take the helms of companies, giving younger people some sort of upward mobility, which had been formerly absent for a long time. There was this like ceiling uh, and layers of, of older people who just kept staying longer and longer. Um, and, you know, it's hard to think about how that manifests uh, uh, on the lower reaches of the labor force, especially as you know, one thing one thing that I, I didn't say in my prepared part, but that I was thinking about, you know, heading into um, COVID, you actually had tighter immigration in the U.S., which had been a meaningful force offsetting um, some of the kind of changes in, in the domestic population and how that was uh, progressing. Specifically, you know, younger people willing to work some of these uh, more menial, lower paid jobs. So without that, without that whole labor pool, um, the, things change a lot too. So those are two big forces that I've been thinking about. And it's hard to kind of wrap your head around what it all means though. It is, it's almost impossible. And so that's where I was actually going to make one caveat was that um, in terms of a big idea, you mentioned this Twitter thread about how to get long labor shortages. I can invest behind for a decade. I'm not sure getting quote long labor shortages is the kind of big idea that really works at least for me just because i think it's so easy to misinterpret well, just or get to be wrong. clear it wasn't about labor so shortages it was about rising wages so how do you get long rising okay wages? okay all right fair enough almost the same thing but i that is a distinction fair enough so but, but my point would be the same which is that i can see lots of ways where wages actually don't increase, at least in real terms, over the next 10 years, right? I mean, like I said, I think the twin forces of demographics and technology are pretty powerful, deflationary or at least disinflationary from here. So I think that's kind of tough. I mean, I and again, if, if there is an obvious way to get long that, I think it's the kind of thing that's going to attract a decent amount of short-term attention and probably be priced. I'd money, if you really were worried about rising wages, you'd probably be interested in the concept of higher inflation overall and tips would probably look like quite a bargain, right? Oh, yeah, I guess that's an interesting one. 
jump in there a little bit. Um, you know, my, my, my issue with tips, Phil, and I've looked at them for a very long time, is just it's based off of the official CPI. And I feel like that's that's probably understated now and may get more understated if inflation really starts taking off. But, oh, sure. You know, uh, but yeah, you would you would definitely get some protection at least. But I feel like in terms of labor, typically um, from what I've seen is that the low end labor um, wage increases uh, do lag inflation. And just given all the dynamics you talked about with automation and so forth, they're probably going to lag inflation by a lot if there is inflation. Um, so, you know, there are definitely much better play- ways to um, get long inflation than somehow low end uh, wages. Maybe high end right. wages certainly is a possibility. Yeah. And look, I, I'm not recommending tips by any stretch of the imagination. I agree. CPI as measured certainly doesn't capture a lot of what matters and what's real. Um, and, you know, if you really wanted to, I mean, you could. You could really stretch and say, "All right, I'm going to be long a, I'm going to own a, a payroll provider like Paychecks or something." I, you know, you just my point is, it's kind of a stretch, and there's a lot of ways to be wrong. Whereas some of the other big ideas that I think fall into this category, it's a little more clear to me to see the the path to success. But um, you know, one other thing that I I just point out is, um, I think if you look at economic history through any part of the developed world, you know, certainly post-industrial revolution, it's that there's been a steady, and I don't mean year over year, I mean decade over decade and generation over generation replacement of labor with leisure, right? I mean, labor participation rates have gone down, hours worked have generally gone down, and particularly as people get wealthier, right? I mean, broadly speaking, across a whole country or a whole economy, I think that's that's held up. And so, what does that mean, right? And as people work less or as people have fewer opportunities potentially for those entry-level jobs, you know, what does that mean for society? And I, I don't know. I, I mean, it's something I kind of worry about, frankly. I don't know if it was true. It's kind of one of those quotes that, you know, it either gets attributed to uh, Winston Churchill, Albert, Albert Einstein, or Charlie Munger, and you never really know who actually said it. I think Munger might have actually said it, but he, it, somebody at some point I made a great point, which was that the best potential business education or, or business provider of education in the world was McDonald's because they've had, you know, hundreds of thousands of people had their first job at McDonald's and they learned how to show up on time, how to, you know, do what was required of the job and what it meant to get a paycheck every two weeks. And I think that's a very good point. And so what happens if that goes away, you know, for a, you know, a whole slug of society, I think that's something we'll have to reckon with. I don't know what the ramifications of that will be. Well, on that note, uh, Phil, can I ping you for uh, your topic of the week? Sure. So my topic of the week is actually missing the big ideas, which like Elliot just said, maybe this is one of the big ideas that I'm missing right now. Maybe the big ideas that we're right on the cusp of having a major uh, and sustainable increase in in wages. But uh, what spurred me to this was that uh, while we were on our little August break, it was exactly the 10-year anniversary of Mark Andreessen's famous Why Software is Eating the World essay, um, which ironically was published on an on a August weekend, you know, the, the famous Saturday long-form Wall Street Journal uh, essay that gets published once a week, uh, probably at the least read issue of the year, right, the third week of August uh, on a weekend. But I do remember reading it at the time. Uh, and I remember, you know, I, I'm kind of OCD about this kind of stuff. Anything like that I read, I, I 
fit, I read it physically. If I read it digitally first, I'll print it out and read it physically. I underline it. I take notes on it and I file it away and I kind of revisit it. And that's one that's made it into what I call the, you know, the top folder. Uh, and it's, you know, just, you know, maybe a few hundred pages of things that I think really stand the test of time that I revisit from time to time. And it's something that I reread about once a year, if nothing else, than to just remind myself of what an idiot I was for not taking it more seriously at the time, because that's exactly the kind of big idea. Again, this is one of these apocryphal quotes, but if you take a big idea and take it seriously, or if you take a big idea and follow it to its logical conclusion, that's really the way, you know, to make big investment gains and to really get you know, successful in a, in a field. And, and likewise, it's it's usually these qualitative insights that have the biggest long-term payoffs, right? I mean, quantitative factors are crucial, right? Nobody likes more data. Nobody likes more number crunching than I do, but that's sort of necessary, but insufficient. And the qualitative factors are really where the big money is made. So if you look back at, you know, Andreessen's essay from almost exactly 10 years ago, his concept was funny. At the time, he called them new technology companies like Facebook and Twitter were creating a big stir in the market. Apple uh, was trading at a, at a forward price earnings multiple of 15 times, which is basically right where the market was in the summer of 2011. And But at that point, Apple was already the biggest market cap company in America. And from that point, by the way, I looked it up from August uh, 19th of 2011 through today. Uh, Apple's produced a 1,259.6% return. That's 29.6% a year over more than a decade. So it's, it's done pretty well, uh, to say the least. But anyway, his point, he goes on to say, and I quote directly here, too much. there's been too much debate around financial valuation as opposed to the underlying intrinsic value of Silicon Valley's new companies. And I think that's exactly right. Every word of that, I would agree with. And I'm completely guilty of this. I would not make a great venture capitalist because I lack both the technical skills and the qualitative imagination to see what can be way out there that seems totally implausible today, but 10 years from now is going to look completely obvious. And you need a handful of those big insights to be 10x, 100x, 1000x home runs in a portfolio of you know 90% or 99% failures to make it work as a venture capitalist. And I just don't think that's how I'm wired. But what I can absolutely do better is to take something like this, where it's all laid out in front of me in common, plain English, and it makes all the sense in the world, which is that this is a natural evolution. We're in the middle of this cusp right here. He lays out how you know the dot-com bust is 10 years in the rearview mirror, and he's saying over the next 10 years, and I quote again, I expect many more industries to be disrupted by, this, by new software, often by world-beating Silicon Valley companies. And the companies he mentions throughout the article, again, this is 10 years ago, include, this is a partial list, but I think I got most of them. Apple, Amazon, eBay, Netflix, Spotify, Pandora, Zynga, Google, Skype, LinkedIn, Square, Salesforce, PayPal. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, everything's laid out for me right here in this article where I, I read it, I paid attention to it. I thought to myself, hmm, he's almost certainly correct. And yet I sat there twiddling my thumbs, right? Why did I not take more direct action? I did end up owning some of these companies over time, but not nearly enough. I should have had this article, relatively short essay, you know, pinned to my desk, like I have other things pinned to my desk, so that I couldn't go more than a few hours or a few days without thinking about it. And it got me thinking about, you know, it's not just me, right? I mean, as much as I want to beat myself up over this, it's not just me. I mean, I think some of the most obvious big ideas elsewhere 
are that if you have a, a business where it has the feedback loop where reinvestment in lower prices and costs creates more customer demand, which allows you to reinvest in yet lower prices and costs. We've talked about this plenty of times. Yeah, that, that's as close to business nirvana as it gets. And it's some of my favorite all-time businesses like Costco, Walmart, Amazon. And yet the greatest investor of all time, Warren Buffett, basically whiffed on all three of those, right? I mean, he certainly whiffed on buying more Walmart when he knew enough to buy a little bit. He basically didn't participate in much of Costco or Amazon. So what caused him to miss it? Because I guarantee you he understands the economics of the situation. I guarantee you he understands the competitive dynamics and the feedback loop that's at work there. So you know, why do you miss these big ideas and what can you do about it? And what are the other big ideas that are out there right now that I'm missing or not taking seriously enough? I've got a partial list of my own, but I want to I want to hear from you guys both what, what you think the big ideas are right now in the world that should be tacked to my desk, so to speak, and, and what we can do other than literally like taping them to your forehead. What can we do to, you know, not not miss them or not keep making the same mistake over and over again? Yeah, you know, I think that's one of the hardest things to do because at the end of the day, I mean, it's part of why I call myself a GARP investor or self-subscribe to the GARP strategy thinking um, I want to make sure I always stay honest to valuation above getting carried away with theme because even if an idea is awesome, uh, at the the wrong price, it it just doesn't make a difference um, whether you get it right or not. Um, but there are some big ideas that I personally, I, you know, a lot of my research projects I'll undertake from the perspective of, okay, this is something interesting, high level. So let me learn about it. Let me learn about it high level. And let me then start learning about the companies that are involved. And I'll pick like one company as the jockey to learn about a space. So what really got me into uh, Roku in the first place was I was learning about programmatic advertising, spending a lot of time on the trade desk and kept seeing you know, references to the next frontier being uh, CTV. And I'm like, oh, okay, what are the interesting ways that could manifest itself? Um, But so, you know, that's just some context. So some of the themes that I am paying attention to um, are uh, specifically, I mean, obviously digitization is is a big one. So anything analog, I think, should still uh, have opportunities to go digital. And uh, there, there are some areas where, you know, there's still uh, much of the underlying business taking place in what I'd call more analog ways than digital. So payments remains a big one, though the um, narrative there is getting a little too enthusiastic for my tastes. Um, Another one, I I wrote about this in my recent letter, but I think um, curation and personalization are one of the next big uh, frontiers of change. And I am quite confident there are going to be some big uh, breakthroughs in how consumers are able to experience personalized um, shopping, personalized experiences online. Um, so that's one I've been trying to pay a lot of attention to. And it's not just shopping. It's stuff like you know Spotify recommending you specific songs, uh, whatever it may be, like there's a huge opportunity. Um, I think you know alongside those, obviously a lot of these when we're talking about big trends, it's hard not to uh, escape technology. Um, so I'm not going to keep trying to pound those drums, but I do think, you know, we got to this a little bit in our, uh, first section and Phil, you made reference to like, uh, leisure being an inevitability when wages are rising. Maybe Keynes was just a hundred years late with his, uh, leisure and age of leisure and abundance. Um, but I do think, you know, leisure, 
climbing up Maslow's hierarchy of needs or, um, you know, that gets to be something that's increasingly important. Um, there's also in several areas, I think, very powerful premiumization trends. Um, one of the ones that I think is a really interesting uh, sector where that's taken place is in spirits, uh, where, you know, kind of two decades into a pretty deep premiumization uh, trend. Um, and I think that's not going to stop anytime soon. I'd be remiss to point out another area being like increasingly regulating and le legalizing and regulating formerly uh, illegal or illicit things. So um, cannabis and sports betting uh, being two big ones that are taking place across not just the United States, but other countries. And, you know, you start hearing after cannabis is legalized, the attention turns to polycybin. These things tend to um, kind of compound on one another. Um, so those are a few. Uh, I'll keep trying to wrap my brain for more, but uh, wondering, may maybe uh, kick it back to you guys for some more. Yeah, I'll jump oh, in are, uh, with a really few good. thoughts. Um, Phil, I think, you know, you, you made a great point about a lot of, um, you know, kind of quote unquote, intelligent investors focused on uh, the numbers and, and, and those kinds of things. And I think that's usually the reason why someone like a Warren Buffett um, like person might uh, miss uh, these uh, kinds of companies because they never look cheap. And maybe you always, you know, if you're a little bit of a stickler on price, you feel like, well, I don't need to buy it now. You know, maybe it comes in and, and so forth. I mean, I remember back in the day, um, a lot of value investors and intelligent in investors uh, preferred Sears Holdings over Amazon because Eddie Lampert was a genius. He was buying back stock. He was rationalizing a whole lot of things and they had real estate and there, there was a good case to be made. Uh, but the, the outcomes of uh, those two uh, companies couldn't have been different. Um, so, you know, focusing on the qualitative aspects would have served investors really well there. And, um, you know, I think kind of if you think about the big ideas, I definitely agree that uh, we are entering uh, an age of leisure kind of that could go very, very, uh, a very long way, um, especially if you think about um, where kind of the, the value of labor will be over the long term as we have automation uh, at the low end. And uh, a lot of labor may be, frankly, uh, worthless. And, uh, and that's where universal basic income might come in. And if you have a, a society with universal basic income, that has all kinds of implications uh, and uh, just greater uh, leisure spending is uh, one of those. Um, you know, for me, another big idea right now is just that, you know, three to five years from now, uh, we're not going to have 30-year interest rates uh, in the low single digits. I, I really can't see that. And in Europe, we're not going to have them at zero. Um, so how do you, what do you do on, there? Um, who knows? But one thing that, you know, normal people ha can take advantage of is um, is borrow, um, take a 30-year mortgage on real estate. And especially if it's income-producing real estate, you end up with an asset that uh, grows with inflation, but you're paying a 0% interest rate over 30 years. So um, that's maybe one idea. Um, 
Other ideas for me are specific companies that have basically businesses that are unique and irreplaceable. And again, I come back to Twitter. I think if you if you tell an average person, um, you know, let's talk about social um, media, and I don't really like to call Twitter social media, but uh, it's in that category. Um, you know, Twitter would would be would take a lot of mind share. It doesn't take a lot of market cap right now. Um, so just thinking about and and also where Twitter is going. You know, they're they've been really improving on a lot of fronts. Um, and the world, I think the three of us, uh, I don't know about you, Phil, but might miss, actually miss Twitter uh, if it was gone. And we, um, you know, not sure <laughs> there would be a, an adequate replacement. Phil, I see you unmuted yourself. So maybe. I, no, I was just chuckling because I, I agree. I don't know if I'd miss it as much as you guys do. I'd like Twitter and I think it's very useful in some ways, but I also think it's poison for society in a lot of ways. And I think if it died an instantaneous death, something potentially even better would pop up tomorrow without some of the baggage that comes along with Twitter. That that all said, your point stands. I, I totally understand where you're coming from. So, and I, I don't disagree entirely, but you're right. I have probably a little glass half empty on that one. So, so I'll just throw out another company name so I don't have just one. And this is not an investment recommendation, but just in terms of the qualitative aspect of, of an asset that cannot be replaced uh, or equaled, uh, the European football club Borussia Dortmund. It is mm-hmm. the number two, you know, sometimes number one, usually number two after uh, Bayern Munich uh, football club in Germany, uh, the largest economy in the EU. And it has a rabid fan base. Um, those those are not customers; those are true fans. They love the club. Uh, their you know grandparents, parents, and their kids uh, love the club, and uh, that's an asset that, with inflation, um, without you know reinvestment in any capex or anything, is going to have tremendous value over time. Uh, and right now, that asset uh, is available for about five hundred million including uh, the ownership of their stadium, which is the largest uh, stadium in Germany and maybe one of the largest in, one of the largest in Europe as well. Um, so you're really not paying much for what is a really unique uh, asset. And uh, you know, but you could say, well, you know football clubs never earn money and the numbers don't really make it that compelling i have to admit so it's 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 a stretch and it may not uh, be a good investment but just in terms of the potential i feel like uh, that is one where uh, you're really kind of the qualitative aspect is very different from the quantitative as it is today it's funny because i just pulled that up on the same time horizon for apple that i did with that mark andreessen article where he called out Apple is being the largest market cap company in the world in August of 2011. And again, one of my thoughts at the time was like, yeah, sure, it's at 15 times earnings, but it's the largest market cap company in America. How could I possibly have any insight here? How could this possibly compound at a good number from here? It's already the biggest company in America. And then it went on to compound at 30% a year for the next decade. So that was uh, dead wrong, to say the least. And yeah, Borussia Dortmund's actually compounded it a little bit better than the German market, uh, a little over 11% for the last decade. And uh, I tend to agree. those That's another one where I would have been dead wrong. I mean, at various points in time, 
everyone from Mark Lazary and Wes Edens buying the Milwaukee Bucks and turning that into the biggest home run you could imagine, or the the group that bought the Golden State Warriors, or uh, you know, even the even the Clippers, right? The LA Clippers has worked out, I think, pretty well, all things notwithstanding. And you're, I mean, the financial, the the numbers on the page don't speak to the value, and so I think you have to be careful there, right? Because you are, it's not speculation per se, where you're relying on a higher price from someone else to bail you out, but the value of it is in, you know, the generation over generation ability to provide something lasting and durable. And if there's one thing, when people ask me, like, what's, what's a big change you've made in the last 10 years in your own investment style, it's that 10 years ago, I was probably still a little bit too much in love with buying something at 50 cents or 70 cents on the dollar for what it was worth today and completely underappreciating the power of duration. And I mean, duration, both in the bond math sense of it and in the qualitative sense, we did a whole episode on this last season about, you know, duration and equity investing. And when you find something with true duration on its side, like Borussia Dortmund and probably like Twitter, I mean, I I don't, I don't think Twitter is going to go away anytime soon. That's for sure. I would fully expect both Twitter and Borussia Dortmund to still be a part of the conversation 10 years from now. Um, And I think that's enormously valuable. So those are excellent ideas, excellent examples. Uh, For my two cents, uh, the things I wrote down were, I also called out kind of, as I mentioned in the, in Elliot's talk about the increasing, um, you know, amount of time and resources devoted toward leisure. I think that is a good one. We just touched on that through those two ideas. I think that's an obvious example. I still think some of the big ideas that I've missed over the last 10 years very much still apply. And just because I feel like I missed them recently doesn't mean that I should continue to miss them. And I'm continuing to make the same mistake today. So businesses that reinvest to lower prices and costs and pass along that savings to the consumer. Hugely powerful software is still eating the world, right? So even that essay that's now a decade old, I think still applies very much so today. I don't think that's going to change. And and, and just more broadly, the Amazon ethos of what won't change, right? So look for businesses where, you know, again, I don't think value investing is a statistical analytical framework of reversion to the mean where you were buying something below net working capital that hasn't worked for a long, long time. But what I think value investing does retain is a bet on reversion to the mean in the sense of what is truly permanent and lasting versus what's ephemeral or psychologically driven in the short run. And so things that won't change, right? I mean, consumers are always going to want more selection, lower prices, faster shipping, right? All the stuff that that Amazon calls out. And I think they're entirely correct. Like you can invest behind that for years on end with confidence, even if it looks ugly in the short run, because those things are are truly persistent. Likewise, you know, I'll never not be in love with low cost business models. Right. And there were things like, uh, you know, we've already talked about Costco and, and Walmart and, and those types of businesses, but ultra low cost carriers in the airline world that just, you know, beat people to death for 20 and 30 years because their business models just made so much more sense. I think that will certainly continue. And I actually flipped it around. I mean, what are some things that are big ideas that have led people astray. And so this is another good area to think about, right? I mean, maybe you have an anti-bulletin board where these are things you just don't want to get caught up in. I mean, most prominently, right as I was starting my career, I heard over and over and over again, don't worry about correlation because housing prices have never fallen nationally, right? I mean, that was a truly big idea that led to a generational disaster. And you have to avoid that kind of stuff. I know I could probably get John going on MMT, right? And, and endless fiscal deficits and, and dropping money out of the sky. I mean, again, I think that's popular in some circles right now. Um, and to say the least, I think the jury's still out. Um, I do think 
today. There's big ideas around the concept that just as I completely agree 100% with Andreessen's notion that you can't be prisoner to numbers on a screen or on a page and get tied up on the financials and the valuation in a DCF concept and miss the true intrinsic value. And, and similar to what you mentioned with Borussia Dortmund, I, I totally agree with that notion 100%. But I also think it gets taken way too far when you see lots and lots of companies trading at 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 times sales, right? I mean, that you know, you can't be prisoner to financial valuation, but you also can't ignore mathematical reality. Some of those companies will work out. I think the vast majority will not as an investment. So that's that's one thing. That's a big idea I have in mind right now, or just overconfidence about anything in general. I mean, a big idea that I always carry around is that overconfidence is the most deadly sin in investing and, and try to avoid that. So those are the things I came up with, and uh, I'm going to go back and uh, repin this all to my desk, and uh, maybe dig in on on some of this some more, and try not to avoid the mistakes of, or try not to repeat the mistakes of the last decade, because there's a lot of good ones here. Maybe just one uh, big idea that came to mind uh, as we were talking, uh, to me, is uh, fintech and the implications it's going to have on banks. Um, you know. At, at the end of the day, I view most of finance as commodity businesses. They're in the business of selling money, basically, or, or some derivatives of, of that. So if you take that view, then a bank is like a store that sells a digital good, money. And, uh, and you know, stores that sell physical goods uh, have been disrupted. So why wouldn't these kinds of uh, stores that sell money be disrupted? And I think they will be. Um, by fintech, so you know that's just that's maybe a, a, a big idea that you could think about if you want to own banks or own banks and and kind of how that's going to look not over the next year or two because I think in the short term the interest rate cycle is going to have a bigger impact. But if you take a view of a decade or two, then uh, this could be uh, you know game changing. Yeah, that's a great point, and um, I tend to agree with you for the most part about legacy banks, I think it's tougher now than it's been for them in a long, long time. And I don't think legacy banks will necessarily all have an obituary next to their name 10 years from now. I think there's a lot of banks. JP Morgan comes to mind as a very forward-thinking bank with a dominant entrenched position. You know, I, I was kind of I went a lot of bar bets with people. I put this on a on a good reading email of mine probably three or four years ago that JP Morgan has more software engineers than Facebook has employees. And so I think that bodes well for JP Morgan's ability to invest enough to stay ahead of the digital curve. Uh, But I I agree with you, John, that, you know, fintech can get ridiculous and get taken way too far, but the big idea behind it is, is very much valid. One other one that's kind of related to that, that I wrote down that I forgot to mention was, you know, for a long, long time, you could really do well investing behind consumer brands. And that's been true for, you know, forever, basically, I would say. And I think largely because of technology and the big idea that software is making price discovery and information ubiquitous, I think the value of any sort of consumer brand, um, at least in the traditional sense of it, has probably never been lower. I mean, it's never been easier to attack an incumbent consumer brand. And so that's a big idea that I would it's harder to exploit. It's easier to play defense against this by saying, you know, I'm not going to quote unquote buy the dip on a legacy consumer brand. This came up actually in the context of uh, some of the big uh, soft drink companies and some of the big 
uh, brewing companies. Somebody, a friend of mine mentioned Boston Brewing the other day, which is having a rough year. And uh, it still just looks kind of vulnerable, in my opinion. I just, not that I know what's going to happen, but I can see lots of ways where it's going to end poorly and only a few ways where it's really going to end really well. And uh, that's tough, right? And I can see the opposite for lots of the big ideas we were talking about on the flip side. So those are the kind of things I just want to avoid. Yeah, I want to chime in on a couple of things. I'll, I'll give a quick Boston Brewing uh, note, which is I think their skill has been staying adept and nimble and reacting and getting into each trend while it's still early. So now they're obviously experimenting with RTDs. So if they get that right, it'll work. But uh, yeah, that's been my problem with that thing every time I've looked at it. Um, but three things I think stood out as interesting. One is, Phil, you mentioned this idea of like looking farther in duration. Um, and, you know, when I think about duration, uh, the average person's doing a five-year DCF, if they're doing a DCF at all, and then saying effectively, this business is going to be mature and growing at a rate of GDP. But if you, you know, could push out that time frame, uh, that's a lot of incremental value that an investor who's able to kind of look and think that way um, could actually uh, do quite well. So, um, you know, I think I think the math is quite simple on that. You just have to be able to say uh, quite assuredly that, well, it might be worth this if it's only five years of true growth, but if it lasts longer, then, you know, it's worth something more and try to quantify that. Um, number two, I think it's also important to think about how, while we're talking about really big ideas, there are big ideas within big ideas. And I think one of my favorite examples of that, we've talked about leisure, um, one specific subset of leisure that I'm fascinated by is outdoor participation. And the outdoor participation rate in like outdoor leisure activities, so we're talking about like hiking, fishing, uh, biking, et cetera, has gone from the low 30% to the mid 50% over the last 15 years. That's massive. And, you know, population is growing behind that. So just think about how many more people are participating in the outdoors. That's a really big trend, right? And yet that's within what I'd say is a subset of leisure. So they're like fractals to this all. Um, you could go really big or you could go just pretty big. Um, and then a third, I'd, I'd be remiss, you know, John mentioned uh, Twitter and obviously everyone knows where I stand. Uh, but let me tie Twitter into like one really big trend. I, I, I am hundred percent a believer in, which is creative empowerment. I think, you know, historically, whether you look at the music industry, whether you look at, um, you know, just uh, what it means to be a journalist where, you know, in the economist, uh, maybe not, wasn't it, where, where you're not even allowed to have your name as your byline on certain uh, elite publications. Um, whatever it may be, if you are someone who is skilled, talented or just you know blessed with beauty or whatever it may be and you have uh, the ability to reach your fans directly on the internet that fundamentally changes uh, the opportunity the idea of an individual as a brand and creates businesses that had never been theoretically possible before so I'm fascinated by creative empowerment and I think it's very real and I'd say we're probably just in the first inning of that. Um, so those are my three extras that have been coming to mind as we're, we're going through this. Yeah, those are really good ones. I like all of those. 
Great. Well, this has been a terrific discussion. Elliot, I have to apologize to you because you asked me about labor shortages in Europe and I just went on my rant instead of actually answering All good. It was <laughs> your great. question. But maybe we'll uh, tackle that another time. Thank you so much uh, to both of you and to everyone listening. Uh, it was a great discussion and I look forward to uh, next week. Take care for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.